This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie Deschal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. I want you to understand that even as I teach now, and I'm going to be teaching you about the ideals around spiritual warfare with the ultimate goal of how to get your plunder back, how, how to get plunder, how to get, you know, not just fight the battles, but to get the stuff. And, and there's a reason that some of you haven't got your stuff. You didn't get your stuff because although you thought, you didn't do the next thing that God needs you to do. And part of that is because of a mindset. Part of it's just what we're talking about now. This idea that we don't fully understand who God is. We don't understand His magnitude. You know, that's why I love the scripture that says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. How can you magnify the most magnificent person on the earth? Well, the, the way you magnify him is you magnify him to each other. You have to, you, you recall who God is. You, you begin to go back over some of these things. Wait, 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 wait. Because sometimes in this world we diminish God. We diminish him in our thoughts. We diminish him. And, and, and the Israelites did that. They said, the Bible says they limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited him. Well, God is unlimited, but we limit him in our understanding. We limit him in our experience with him. We limit him with our uh, philosophies. And so we're going to try to dismantle some of that stuff today, okay? And uh, I've got a lot of material. Uh, I can go a hundred different directions, but I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help guide us. I have, I have one thing in mind this morning I think that will help us. So. Uh, Why don't you turn to somebody and say, I'm glad you're at the prayer conference. Give somebody a big hug and we're going to get started right away. Thank you guys. God bless you. Amen. Wow. I thought we had a great launch last night. The praise and worship was amazing. The high praises of God were in our mouth. And uh, the two-edged sword went forth, and uh, so uh, I think we can only grow and build from there. We started with a good foundation. I think that hopefully this morning I'll be able to uh, set a platform, and uh, right after I'm done, uh, Dr. Peter Morgan will be right on my heels. He's, I, I, I'm just going to introduce him. He'll come, and he'll be right on my heels, and then we'll take a little break, and then you better bolt yourself in because Mark Blitz is, uh, Mark Biltz is going to come, and when, and when Pastor Mark comes, I think we're all going to be sitting on the edge of our chairs, okay? So uh, that'll be a great session before lunch, and then when we come back this afternoon, then we just rip the cover off everything, all right? So uh, we're just going to have a wonderful time, and, and learn, to, learn to listen, and listen to what, not I'm teaching, but what is the Holy Spirit teaching to you? You know, many people listen to get notes. Some of you pastors are here. And I, now, let's turn our phones off, guys. All right. Uh, some of you pastors are here, and you are so busy. And then you get so busy that you come to a conference to get your notes so you know what to preach next month. Now, you'll get good sermons out of all this, and that's fine, and we want you to do that, but more than get sermons, I want you to get ministered to. This is a prayer 
conference. We're here not only to get words and get, but we're here to also pray. And uh, especially this afternoon, we're going to spend uh, some time praying and really seeking God. And, and uh, we may just stop in the middle of a message here and I may just say, hey, let's, let's just pray about that. Because I, I think that sometimes you go to a prayer conference and we forget to do the one thing we're there for. Pray. Amen. So uh, open your Bibles with me. And we're going to be talking about this concept of spiritual warfare. And I'm going to lead you down a path. I'm going to try to lead you to a place where you can understand how to get your stuff back. How to, how to, how to get the spoils of war. How to get the plunder. Everybody say plunder. But we're not going to get there today. We're going to probably get there by um, maybe the second half of my, my session tomorrow morning. And then on Saturday, I'm going to really... Uh, take you into the depths of what it looks like, okay? But I, I, I touched on something last night that I felt was incredibly important for you to understand today. And so there's a story in the Old Testament, you're very familiar with it, but I would like to review it with you. In 2 Kings, the fourth chapter, the first verse, the Bible says, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets. Now understand who this man is. He's uh, part of the prophetic team. He may have, uh, you know, when, when you're talking about Elisha, this may have been one of the prophets, the 50 prophets that had watched Elisha take the mantle from Elijah. So we have to understand that this is not just, this, 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 this speaks of a prophetic group of people. This may even speak of a picture of the church. It may speak of a picture of those of us that are filled with the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit. Paul says, I wish that you would all prophesy. You know, uh, this, this, is, this is speaking of spiritual people. A wife of that man cried out to Elisha, you servant, your servant, my husband is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. So this prophet has died, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Now, I'll tell you, you can't just read this as a story. Everything has a spiritual connotation. When you're involved in spiritual warfare, when you're involved in things of the spirit, you've got to understand something, that the enemy is coming to rob, to kill, and destroy. If he can, he'll take your life. If he can, he'll take your children into slavery, into bondage. If he can, if you allow it, he's going to do all he can to do what he does. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what you have in your house. Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha asked, or Elisha said, go around and ask all of your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside, shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, that looks like fun to me. I don't know about you. Now, now think about it. You, you got your sons. They're running to all the neighbors. 
Bring me another. Get another jar. Get as many jars as you can. And you have this one little jar, a little jar of olive oil. Hey, hey, hey. I don't know where this is coming from, but I sure like this. How big is your God? See, some of you have a very small God, and you say, well, how can you make something from nothing? Well, I don't know. He created the whole world out of nothing. I don't think it's pretty hard for him to create a little bit of olive oil, do you? Or just tap your neighbor say, uh, that was the Old Testament. It's not the New Testament. Just tell them. I'm not talking about miracle money. I'm talking about principles of how God operates. And, and I want you to understand, there's, there's something to this. I don't fully understand it, but I, I understand this, that what God's trying to show us is a principle of he's sufficient. He's El Shaddai, all sufficient. He's more than enough. He is able to create in our situations In impossible situations, when the jars were all full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But, she, but he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You, so you, you and your sons can live on what is left. Here's what I want you to see out of that story. Because this woman appears again and again and again throughout the scriptures. She is the Shunammite woman. This is the, the, this is the woman. And uh, th this woman, God, God seems to just love this woman somehow. We, we see her appear. But here's what I want you to see in her heart. Somehow she has figured out that God has grace for her future. Somehow she's figured out that, hey, there is a God that I can trust, and he works through his word. He works through this man of God that she has a relationship with. But she has figured something out, and she has a positive inclination towards God. Look at verse 8. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So Whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay here whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and laid down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her. And she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you, can have, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Man, I want you to know something. There's a principle. God will never be outgiven. God is the God of abundant supply, and God will never be outgiven. And I've seen in my own life when it looked like the ledger had gone pretty far one way. <laughs> I'm doing all the giving, and hey, <laughs> you know, I'm being faithful here. God, God. But can I tell you something? In, in my 
40-some years of ministry and my 37 years in Africa, God has taught me that as I'm faithful to give, as I'm faithful to take care of God's men, as I'm faithful to take care of God's house, as I'm faithful to do certain things, he'll always supply. And it's a crazy thing. It's a crazy thing. Because I know this for a fact, that in almost every person's life, there comes a moment in time when God comes and asks you a question. What do you want? What do you want? Boy, and I'll tell you what, there are many, many people, when God asks that question, they ask and they answer the wrong, que- the wrong answer, with the wrong answer. Hmm? Solomon was asked the question, what do you want? He says, oh, and his attitude is really amazing. You know, there was one passage where he says, hey, I'm just a small boy. I'm just a young man, and I don't know how to even do what I'm supposed to be doing here. I'm supposed to build something great and magnificent. That's one of the translations, magnificent for God. And I'm just a small boy. He had this humility about him as a young man that when God finally came to him and says, what is it that you want? He says, listen, this great people that you have, he says, I just want you to give me the ability to lead them and to guide them. I, I need something to take care of your, what's yours. And God says, because you didn't ask for wealth, because you didn't ask for riches, because you didn't ask for fame, he says, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, I'm going to give you all these other things as well. There's a quality that you must have when God asks you the question. I've seen men answer and say, I want the deal. I want this deal. God says, okay, I'll give you that deal, but you may get what you want, but you won't want what you get. Some people are so short-sighted that they can only see the deal today and they forget that this is eternity. This is a lifetime. This is inheritance for our future. You see, and so if you only see the immediate, you'll miss the ultimate. Are you following me? So God, God is trying to help us understand a mentality that we must have, especially if you're in a warfare. Many people have a battle mentality. They fight one battle at a time, and they only live for today. They live for today's battle, and they forget that, hey, I may even lose a battle today, but I have a war that I'm going to fight for eternity. I'm fighting a war for posterity. I'm fighting a war for inheritance. Are, are you following my thoughts here? So here, I'm, I'm trying to, 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 to get to where I'm going, but the, these thoughts are, are important. I think that we grasp them, okay? What is it that you want? What can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? That's not a bad request. I mean, and here's a man of God that has the ear of the king. Here's a man of God that has... An audience with the commander of the army. She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be, what can be done for her? Asked, Elisha asked. And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Now you have to understand, in, in, in a Jewish mindset and, and, and even in an African mindset, how shameful is it for a woman to not have posterity. How shameful is it for a family to not have a future? To not be able to live on. She has not received a son. Do you you understand? Are you reading between the lines here, okay? 
Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her, and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will have a son in your arms. She says, no, God, I don't, don't, don't do that. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Now, many people interpret that as unbelief. No, this woman has had disappointment her whole life. Disappointment is a wealthy woman. She's a wealthy woman, but she's had lots of disappointments. She says, hey, listen, I am content to live the way I am. Can you imagine how you have an aging husband, you're older, and you have not had a child. You've desired this child. You've been the shame of your community. You, 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 you've lived through that. You've become prominent. You've become wealthy. You've become this person. And now, all of a sudden, this man of God comes along and says, oh, by the way, in your old age, you're going to have a baby. No, no, no. He says, he says listen, I, I've fought that battle too many times. I don't need that again. Don't, don't, don't mislead me. Don't, 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 don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elijah had told her. The child grew. Now, now here's what I want you to understand something. I, I don't want you to misinterpret that as dis unbelief. I just think you have to understand that this woman had a propensity towards God. Obviously, she received the word of the man of God, or she wouldn't have fallen pregnant. Are you listening to me? I can't tell you how many women in our church, how many people that I've prayed for with a word from heaven that says your womb will be open, you're going to have a baby, and, and they have, within a year they have a baby. That's God. God wants to do that. God wants to unlock your wombs. God doesn't want anybody to be under shame. God does, that's God. Can you receive that word? Can you believe it? Amen. The child grew, and one day he, was out, he went out to his father who was with the reapers. He said to the father, he says, my head, my head. His father told the servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Boy, I'll tell you what, that is so important. Do you see that? Where did she take the baby? The young man dies. She takes him and lays him on the bed of the man of God. This woman has a hope for future grace. She's not, she's not, ululating, mourning. No, she says, no, no, no. She says, the man of God promised. She says, I, I'm, I'm, God's not done. There's got to be future grace in this. She doesn't take him into her bedroom. She doesn't take him into his bedroom. She takes him to the bedroom where the man of God had laid. Here's my question. This isn't just a story. What do you do when, tra tra when tragedy hits your house? When sudden fear comes, the Bible says don't fear. But what do we do? We want the spoils of war. We want the blessing of God. We want God on our side. But I promise you, I watch people, they don't go to the house of God. They go back to Kamusha. They go back to the, the witch doctor. They go to the, they go everywhere but God. Let me ask you, when you get sick, where do you go? Yes, the doctor. But I'm going to tell you something. Before you go to the doctor, maybe you should lay on the house of 
the, the, the bed of the man of God. Maybe you should go to the kingdom of God. Maybe we should go to God first. But do we really believe this covenant? Do we really believe it? When you get into financial trouble, where do you go? Of course, you go to the bank. Try to get a loan. You go steal from your neighbor. You go, you go, you go borrow money. You figure it out. Or do we go and lay on the bed of the man of God? When your business dies, when your marriage is dying, where do you go? Of course, you go to your mother-in-law. No, no, you go to your mother, right? All the men go home to mommy. It's true. In fact, some of you still live with your mother. What's wrong with you? I'm serious. What's wrong with you? The Bible says, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother. I, ladies, and I, some, some of you that have the, the, the little, husbands that are little boys still tied to their mother's apron string. They are. They're little boys. They've never grown up. They've never been able to break the tie with their mother. Now, I tell you what, every man has to break the tie with his mother. That doesn't mean you disrespect her, but you can't have her controlling you or your family. I don't know how I got onto that topic. But just tap your neighbor and say, I think he's talking to somebody here today. But just reassure them and it's not you. It's not me. It's not me. Now listen to what she does. She lays him on the bed of the man of God, shuts the door, and leaves. She calls her husband and says, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so that I can go to the man of God quickly and return. The husband's incredulous. He says, why go to him today? It's not the new moon. It's not the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you to. Let me tell you something. There comes a time when you need to make haste for the things of God. Don't slow down unless I tell you to. Just, just get on with the program, okay? So she set out and she came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And he saw her in the distance. Now I'll tell you what. I'm not sure how he saw her in the distance. Because if you've ever been to Mount Carmel, you're way up on a mountain. And it's quite high. You can see the valley of Megiddo, you can look down, you can see everything, but I'm not sure you could see, <laughs> hey, that's the, that's the Shunammite woman coming. I don't know how she's, I don't know how he saw, maybe he saw by the spirit, I'm not sure, but that's, I'm going to have to ask that question when I get to heaven. I don't know how that works, but uh, anyway, he uh, saw in the distance, when he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look. There's the Shunammite. <laughs> Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Now listen to what she says. Everything is all right, she said. Everything is all right. Now, can I just stop here for a second? In spiritual warfare, your words count for everything. In life, your words count for everything. You know, I know people that are so loose with their lips that they're sinking their ships. 
I had one lady come and say, well, that's just how it is. That's just who I am. And that's how I feel. I said, well, the way you feel, the way it is, and the way you are is killing you. This woman didn't say how she felt. She didn't say what was. She says, it's all right. There's some people you don't ever tell the true story to, ever. If I get sick, I'm probably not going to tell most of you that I'm sick. You kill me. You put me in the grave. Oh, our pastor's sick. Our pastor. How? You'll create a community of unbelief rather than a community of belief. The gossip would spread so fast that you would kill me. Your confessions would destroy me. I know a pastor, a friend of mine who got cancer, and he told, the can- he told his congregation, the worst thing he could have ever done is tell the congregation, oh, our pastor died, and he died. He died. That congregation, and they would have prayer meeting after prayer meeting after prayer meeting after prayer meeting of unbelief. Oh, our pastor's dying. Our pastor's dying. God, heal our pastor. Jesus healed me 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. By his stripes, I am healed. So when you want to fight in the spiritual warfare of life and death and health, you want to gather around you people that have faith. People that know how to stand on the word of God. People that will contest with you in faith, believing what God says. Do you remember Jesus? What would he do? Every time he was with a dead body, every time he was with a sick person, he would remove the wailers, he would remove the congregation, he would remove everybody and just bring one or two of his disciples with him who he knew could agree with him in faith. Are 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 we seeing anything here? See, you want to have spiritual battles won, but sometimes we're violating principles all the way along the way. Here's a woman of faith. Here's a woman who has future hope. She says, even though my son is dead, hey, I'm going to find the man of God who gave me this son, and I told him not to trouble my house. I told him not to, 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 to lead me down the garden path. I told him I didn't want this, but I'll tell you what, if he could bring the son, surely he can save the son. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over, like most of our ushers, to push her away. No, uh, somebody told me one time that ushers, if you put a P in front of it, it's pushers. <laughs> you know, in the early days, we used to have these prayer lines and, you know, uh, we had a saying that if 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 if, if there was there was a, there was a there was an evangelist and you know we said if the Holy Ghost doesn't get you that evangelist will he he push you down. <laughs> I watch guys get pushed to the ground and I'm thinking, we don't need pushers. We just need the Holy Ghost. Okay, all right. So uh, so <laughs> anyway, that's a sidetrack. So he was trying to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress 
but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. She said, now listen to what she says. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi. That's all she said. She didn't say the boy was dead. She, didn't see, she, she, she said, didn't I tell you not to raise my hopes? This woman's in faith. This woman is right at the feet. She has calculated what she said. She is, this, this is wise warfare here in the spiritual realm. Elisha says to Gehazi, tuck your coat into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. See, this woman has hope. This woman has a future. She believes in a future grace. A future grace. She says, wait a minute. And her faith is based on the fact that she knows that God has a grace for her to walk into. Okay? As surely as the Lord lives and as surely as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and he followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elijah and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house... There was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hand. As he stretched himself on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away, walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times. Boy, it's amazing to me. There's that word seven. Zayin. Would that be significant in this year? The boy sneezes seven times. Let me tell you what. God let his sword drop, cut off death, and brought a new life. God's doing that in our land, and he's doing that in our lives too. Seven times this little boy sneezed. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. She took her son and went out. I don't know about you, but when I read these stories, I, I, I have to ask all the questions. I say, now, God, what are you trying to teach me? How does this apply to my life? How does this apply to my situation? How does this apply to the situation of our nation? How does this apply to the constructs that we face on a daily basis? Future hope. Future grace. Faith now. What's your hope like these days? Do you see a future grace in your life? 
Do you have something to base your faith in? Look again in 2 Kings 8, verses 1 through 6. We see the same woman. You don't mind if I take a little bit of time and just read the Bible, hey? I'm going to do it anyway. Now Elisha had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. The, the woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and they stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. For how many years? At the end of those seven years, the sword fell, and guess what happened? Everything was restored. At the end of the seven years, she came back from the land of the Philistines and went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now, you understand what happens if you abandon your land or if you leave your land or even if you leave and you give your land to somebody else for a season, it's still your land in Israel. But here, possibly somebody had taken the land or somebody had laid claim to her land. She's been gone seven years. And like today, you have squatters or you have people that have uh, taken your company or they've taken your uh, share in your company that they didn't deserve. They have uh, done things that they uh, have done unrighteously. They're possessing your land. They're possessing your stuff. Anybody have that situation? Is there somebody that's possessing your stuff illegally? So she comes back and she's going to appeal for her house and her land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had just said, the, 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 or the, the king had just said, tell me about the great things Elisha has done. Just as Gehazi, boy, I tell you, would you have a, when you have a positive grace, future grace in you, when you see future grace, these kind of things happen to you. Just as Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Let me ask you, do you think that Gehazi being there is going to help this case a little bit? He's just talking about this woman. Oh, there was a woman, man, and, and, and I ran ahead with his staff. It didn't work. You know, man, it was really crazy. This woman was hanging on to the prophet. Oh, my God. And, and, and this, this, she's an incredible woman. And, and, and sure enough, the prophet goes in, and, and he told us that he laid on him, and, 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 and face to face, eye to eye, nose to nose, breathed into him, and, and, and nothing happened. He paced a little bit, but warmth went back into his body. Then, then he laid on him again. The little boy sneezed seven times. And got up and, uh, this is an amazing story. Do you think the king's interested? What a testimony, man. This is amazing. How did that happen? Hmm. This is the woman, my lord, the king. And this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. So the king asked the woman about it. And she told him the story. Then he assigned an official to her case. And said to him, give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land from the day she left my country until now. Give her everything back with interest. <laughs> See, some of you, you'd just be happy to get back home. Well, praise God, we'll start over. 
yeah, yeah, we got guys in our house and I can't get them out. Uh, well, you know, they, 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 they took my business and, you know, I just, excuse me. If you do not have a hope for future grace in your life, then you settle for far less than God intended for you. Here's three things I want you to notice. This woman had future faith, future grace. She had faith for the future. She had boldness. You have to be bold. You have, she had boldness to ask, even though she'd lost everything, and she fought for her rights, for her property. This isn't just going to happen. You can't just think that it's going to happen. But God wants you to fight. And then third, she knew her right standing with God. Evidenced by how she spoke to the king in front of Gehazi. This woman was bold. She knew her standing with God. She knew she had a relationship with the prophet of God and with his servant. She was bold. She had nothing that could keep her from speaking the truth. See, are you listening? I'm belaboring this because I want to take you into another story that's just the opposite. So here this woman, she made an appeal to the king. The king heard her, and the king put a case manager on her case and made sure that she was paid back in full with interest. Now turn with me to Joshua, the seventh chapter. In fact, just watch. I have it in the Message Bible. And, and let's see what this is. This is the antithesis of what we've just spoken about. In Joshua, the seventh chapter, the tenth verse, we pick up the story where we've attacked Jericho, we've had a tremendous victory, and we've just attacked Ai with a few thousand men. We sent 3,000 men to Ai, and we were slaughtered. We lost 36 of our men, and this should have been an easy little outpost that we should have been able to take quite easily, and we've lost. And the Bible says in Joshua 7, 10 through 12 in the Message Bible, and God said to Joshua, get up. Why are you groveling? See, sometimes we're praying, oh God, oh God, oh God. Oh, oh. Wailing up in the prayer room, wailing at the altar, groveling before God. And God says, get up. Why are you groveling? Israel has sinned. They've broken the covenant I commanded them. They've taken forbidden plunder. They've stolen, the co they've stolen and then covered up their theft, squirreling it away with their own stuff. The people of Israel can no longer look their enemies in the eye. They themselves are plunder, and I can't continue with you if you don't rid yourself of the cursed things. That's pretty powerful stuff, don't you think? So there's three things he mentions here. The result of contraband. Now, contraband is anything that is unlawful, anything that should not be in the camp of God, anything that should not be in your home, anything that should not be in your life. The result of contraband in the camp. Now, I want you to understand that this applies to an individual, this applies to a family, this applies to a church, this applies to a, a nation. So, we have to begin, we have to be very, we have to be very careful when we bring contraband, which is forbidden plunder, into our camps. 
How many of you know some plunder is, is forbidden? God is not against plunder. He's just against forbidden plunder. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to acquire things in this life. We've had teaching on the trading floors. You can acquire things on a righteous trading floor, or you can acquire things on an unrighteous trading floor. If you get on an unrighteous trading platform, you curse your harvest. You curse your business. You curse your plunder. You curse your life. But on a righteous trading floor, you have confidence with God to obtain everything that he wants you to have. Now, whether it's things or whether it's people, we have to be very careful as how do we obtain these things and how we handle these things. See, God is really into the who, how, what, why, when, where of the things that we obtain. He really is. He really does not only judge what you have, but he judges the attitude of the heart about how you got it. So here's the three things that we see in this story. Number one, we see that Israel now has a reduction in authority and in power. The Bible says they can no longer look their enemies in the eye. I don't know about you, but it's very hard when you're sinning in an area to look your children in the eye and confront them about the sin in their life that's in your life. Uh, it's hard as a pastor to be able to confront sin when the sins you're confronting are in your eye, in your life. It's hard as a, uh, a businessman when you're violating every law in the book to tell people how to be a righteous businessman. That's why so many of our businessmen today don't want to share from the pulpit. They don't want to share about how to do business because they, they can't look their enemy in the eye. So then we lose our future grace. We lose our hope for our future. When you can't look your enemy in the eye. Are you listening to me? You see, when you let contraband come into your personal life, or when we allow it to come into the church, or our business, or our nation, you lose your power, and you lose your authority. You could no longer look your enemies in the eye, and you could no longer stand before your enemies. You have to be careful. Be careful what you allow to come in, or what you allow to permit, be permitted in your home. Be careful what you let into your life. Be careful what you let into our church, into our businesses. And I just have to say this. Our government has no idea what they're allowing into our government. They have no doors. Our nation is absolutely powerless when it comes to what it allows to come in and out of our country. Everything goes. And there's not one minister, there's not, even our president cannot address it. Righteously. That's why the newspapers recycle the same old headlines. Daggers out, swords drawn. But it, nothing ever comes of anything. We lose $13 billion and it's wiped away from our lips like, well, it was a rounding error. 
Nobody's ever accounted for it. Nobody's lost a job. Why? Because nobody can correct anyone else. They can't look their enemies in their eyes anymore. You see, when you let contraband, contraband in, it makes you liable to destruction. You're liable to problems. You are giving the enemy a legal right to enter in and bring destruction. The Bible says the thief is here. He's around. In John 10.10, it says he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life to the full or life abundantly. So we have to guard ourselves and guard our hearts and guard our lives and guard our institutions and, and guard everything God's given us authority over against contraband. Why? So that we do not lose our position and our ability to look our enemies in the eye with confidence and authority and deal with them. Look, let me try to explain this. I'll try to close with this today. We'll get to point two tomorrow. But look at this passage of scripture. In Luke, the third chapter, verses 21 and 22, it says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. Heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love and in whom I'm well pleased. This is a very powerful passage of scripture. Jesus is being inducted into his ministry. Jesus is 30 years old. He goes to John, is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. God opens the heavens. His voice speaks a dove descends and an anointing comes upon Jesus. The anointing comes. Look at verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. So now we know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was his infilling with the Holy Spirit. He left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said unto him, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor and all their power. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. We know the story. But how does that story relate to you and I? How does that relate to our warfare? How does that relate to what God wants to do with your life? And, 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 and please listen to me as I close this message out. I've got about 15 minutes, but I want you to catch this because this could save some of you some tremendous heartache. This may explain why some of you are where you are and why you can't get your story, get your plunder. See, the relationship between Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness really is a logical spiritual necessity and it establishes a pattern that is lived out in the lives of all of us, his followers. When Jesus comes up out of the waters of the Jordan, the spiritual realm is opened up to him. He begins to see something that he's never seen before in the spiritual realm. His spiritual perspective and his spiritual awareness is open to him. I think he always knew that he was the son of God, but it wasn't until this moment that the anointing to be the son of God, 
He always had future hope and future grace, and he had faith. I mean, he is the Son of God. He is, but he was a man. He was in every way like you and I. But at this moment in time, everything culminated in an anointing of the Holy Ghost that came upon him. Most believers who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit as Jesus was, he was in the Jordan River, will tell you that since the time of their baptism, there are many spiritual blessings that have come upon their life. But also, warfare and conflict have become more readily discerned, and the Word of God has become readily understood. How many of you have been filled with the Holy Spirit? How many of you, when that happened, all of a sudden you began to realize an awareness of the Word, an awareness of spiritual warfare, and a greater awareness of spiritual blessing? See, immediately following his baptism, the Holy Spirit brings Jesus into the arena of conflict and combat in the wilderness of temptation. Now think about this. For many of us, for many believers, there seems to me that those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, as a pastor I've observed this, Often in into a season or a time of great doubt, testing or struggle, especially after they've received the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In fact, the warfare around the Holy Spirit and you moving in the Spirit and being led of the Spirit is constantly being contested because that Holy Spirit is what moved in Jesus to defeat Satan in the first place. Not only do you have the warfare, but you also have a deeper awareness, a deepening of relationship with the Lord. But it is there in the spiritual realm, that's where the real battle is lived out. And the Lord is bringing us to learn the principles for a life of Holy Spirit fullness and spiritual discernment. That's what he's trying to help us to become. The problem is that many Believers become casualties in their very first struggle or in subsequent struggles. And they either back off in fear, they retreat in flight, or some are determined enough to go through the flak and then start venturing out beyond their own preparedness. They're ignorant of the armor of God that's been provided for them, and they end up getting shot down. They end up getting hurt, wounded, damaged. Others learn how to stand still and see the salvation of their Lord. They don't know what to do, but they call upon the name of the Lord. They find him adequate, and they begin to learn how to do real spiritual warfare. And I was just speaking to someone on the phone before I came in here, and uh, he was telling me about a book that he was reading by a very well-known entrepreneur who had become spirit-filled. And the, the entrepreneur said the hardest thing he had to learn as a spirit-filled believer was to be patient while waiting for God to bring about what only God could bring about. And he said that was the hardest thing. He said because he was so used to making things happen, so used to litigating, so used to all the things. But he says as he learned to listen to the Holy Spirit, as he learned to wait, as he learned to be patient, he says and that's the, the hardest thing in his entire life was to be patient. 
And that's all of us. You see, one of the aspects of us being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ is that we need to allow the Holy Spirit to come upon us. We need to allow the spiritual realm to be opened up to us. And then we need to understand that with that comes a spiritual combat that we have to learn how to do our spiritual warfare. Now, this not only happens individually, but this happens corporately in churches. Do you remember what we talked about? Achan and I. We're going to come back to him later on in my teaching. But did you understand that one man's sin affected the whole congregation? That's very Jewish in its thinking. The Greek thought is that each one of us matters. It's only I that count. I am important. I have my purpose. My purpose. That's not how God thinks. That's not how the Hebrew mind thinks. The Hebrew mind is always we. Our. Us. It's always together. Always together. Even the Lord, when he taught his disciples to pray, said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father. Forgive us this day our sins. Individually and corporately. Your individual sin affects us corporately. Can you understand the spiritual warfare that we're in? Are we beginning to see something? See, Satan has a method of attack. It doesn't change. The, when Jesus went into the wilderness, Satan attacked three areas of discipline. Number one, food. Feed yourself. The first temptation had to do with the working of miracles for Jesus' own comfort. Many of us, the Bible says, when you pray or when you ask, you ask amiss wanting to consume everything upon yourself. You have a wrong motive. You're seeking your own comfort. You're seeking your will. You're seeking you. And God says, no, it's got to be the corporate. He says, it's got to be us. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be kingdom. It can't be the immediate. It's got to be the eternal. It can't be the, 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 the situation in the now, the battle. It's got to be the war. Secondly, the discipline of your, first of all, is the discipline of yourself, your own comfort. Secondly, is the issue of worship. Worship me. The second temptation was to miss the power in the meek thing to do, which is to seek the face of God. You see, Satan offers power in exchange for worship. Jesus refuses because he worships Father God, and through that worship comes real power. You know, I have to say this about the charismatic renewal and the charismatic movement. And I have to make a little criticism of the faith movement is that we taught about the authority of the believer, but we forgot to talk about the meekness that came with it. So we all started strutting our stuff as, bless God, the devil is subject to me. No, the, sub, the devil is subject to Christ. And as I'm hidden in Christ, as I'm in him, I have authority. There has to be a meekness in the believer. When you see these, when you see a man of God, and I was guilty, and I am guilty, strutting your stuff like, hey, everything happens from the man of God. 
God uses men of God. Don't get me wrong. God anoints people. But it's to bring glory to Christ. Not to bring glory to yourself. Not to bring attention to yourself. I've had to learn some painful lessons and I think I'm still learning those. But I'm seeing Christ be glorified. And Christ raised up in people. And God will use every vessel that will make itself available for Christ to be used up. It's not just the man of God. And then finally, the third thing, of course, was the temptation to prove yourself. This is always a false application of authority. And it's usually very undisciplined, presumptuous, it's untrusting. It is the temptation that, you, to make, that makes you think that you, can, that you can move God's hand. I know some people pray like that. Bless God, if we could just be powerful enough and we can decree it long enough, if we can say it, name it and claim it, God has to do what I told him to do. No, God is God. God is God. And it's presumptuous for you and I to think that we can command the hand of God. Is anybody listening to me today? The next thing is, First of all, Satan has a method of attack. Secondly, we have to understand that Satan had the right to offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Some people don't think he did. When it says that Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus was seeing all the power centers of control that were controlled by spiritual beings on the earth. Satan freely exposed the kingdom of his control to Jesus because he knew that for the first time there was a clear vision into the realm of his domain. And a new order of being was entering into the human scene. And you, you know what? Jesus did not contest Satan's right to offer him that power. And the power of those kingdoms. Because they were delivered into Satan's hands at the fall of our mother and father, Adam and Eve. The heartbreak of this world in people's lives, the pain that people suffer is administered by the power of hell himself whose master stroke is that he indicts God for what he does. Why does God let this happen to me? Every evil thing that's happening in the earth is by the God of this world and our warfare is against spiritual principalities, it's against powers, it's against darkness, it's against all kinds of things, and we're going to talk about that. But my time is up. My time is up. But tomorrow I'm going to pick up and show you that there are seven levels of demonic and, and, and spiritual authority. We're going to go into this a little bit deeper, and I'm going to help you to get a basis for your warfare. There's no sense in telling me that you can go get your spoils if you don't know what you're fighting, if you don't know what ground you stand on to go get them. Is this helping anybody today? Just turn to your neighbor and say, I want to learn to be a warrior in the kingdom of God. This is foundational teaching. But I'm afraid that in some of our charismatic expressions we have led people to either go out beyond the pale of where they are outside of Christ 
using an authority that they don't have, speaking about things they shouldn't, or we've retreated because we've been so hurt and so wounded once we had a spiritual enlightenment. God wants to put you back on a solid bedrock where when you go to war, you'll know how to defeat your enemies, you'll know how to look your enemy in the eye, and we'll deal with all the other issues starting again tomorrow. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.